Okay, today, Jack, um, we're going to talk about the original investment commentary and content that we created and also the uh, top articles that um, we picked for this week, the week of March 12th, 2021. Um, and to start, Jack, why don't you maybe um, begin by just talking about the article uh, that you wrote this week, which actually got um, some good play on Twitter um, about sort of uh, value stocks and maybe the performance of value stocks and what might be fooling some investors in the market today. Yeah, you know, value funds and deep value strategies have had huge run-ups here off the bottom. Um, you know, if you're looking at like 100, 200% type returns in some of these some of these funds off the bottom. And so there's a narrative that's developed off that, that value investing is back, that, you know, we're, we're finally seeing the turn in value. And as much as I'd like that to be true, because, you know, we run a lot of valid value strategies ourselves, you know, when you look behind the scenes and the data, the, the answer is a little more complicated than that. And, and, and the reason is because there's a lot of other things that are going on, other factors that drive returns besides just value. And and so when you look at the, the funds that have the best performance off the bottom, you'll typically see three things in their profile. You'll see they have a lot of exposure to value, so their stocks are cheap. You'll see they have a lot of exposure to size, meaning they have small and mid-cap stocks. And you'll see a lot of exposure to what we call negative quality, meaning that they, the, the companies within their portfolios would not be considered good quality companies, which is typical for value, but, but that's what you're seeing in these funds. And so what you have to look at if you want to say what actually caused these funds to go up off the bottom is you have to look at each one of those factors independently and say, you know, how much has each one played a role in what's happened? And so when you do that, like I did a simple example in the article where I looked at, I did an example where I said, all right, if I took the bottom 10% of, of all stocks we cover based on size, so the smallest 10% as of March 26th last year at the bottom, or if I took the cheapest 10% for value, or if I took the worst companies or the, the lowest quality companies, if I, if I managed each one of those as three separate baskets, what would my return have been from the bottom until now? And the answer is the size portfolio has the biggest return. So it, something like 180% just by buying small companies without thinking about anything else. The value portfolio by a very small margin has the second best return. And then the terrible company portfolio is very close to the value portfolio. And so what, what all this means is when you look behind the scenes, what you're seeing is a lot of the performance of the value funds that have done really well has been driven by negative quality or these, you know, these poor, company, poor quality companies and also by size, by small companies. And so that doesn't take anything away from the returns. Obviously, the returns are great. And you know, when, when you buy value, you know you're going to be getting some companies that maybe aren't the greatest companies. But it, it does mean that investors should take a look behind the scenes and just understand what's going on. Because when you look at funds that, are, that invest in higher quality companies, so value funds that tend to invest in high quality companies, those funds have done much worse off the bottom. Um, which is, again, an indication of the fact that buying good companies has been a bad idea. Buying terrible companies or bad companies has been a good idea. So it's just important when you, you know, it doesn't take anything away from the gains of the past. But when you look forward and you say, how do I expect my portfolio to, to behave going forward? It's important to understand what caused it to do what it did in the past. And so I think that that was my point in the article was not to take anything away, but more to say, this is what actually is happening behind the scenes. And it's important for people who have invested in value to understand that. Now, the one thing with that is, I think that the companies that you're highlighting, so the the cheapest, the you know the the ones with the least amount of quality, the smaller ones, those were probably the ones that were hit hardest coming into um, the sell-off last year. So I would imagine if you look back, those were probably the companies that got hit the most because those are the ones that were, you know, maybe the businesses weren't as high quality, so their stocks tended to get hit more coming into that. But as we've you know, I guess sort of come out of it, 
um, those stocks have been the biggest uh, the biggest winners. Um, like you highlighted, the other thing I know, like this year, is is micro caps. Like when you look at in the small cap universe, when you look at small caps, and then you break out even micro caps, I think that that segment of the market is doing even better than the overall small cap uh, market. So it just goes to show how much you know smaller companies are driving a lot of the the returns in some of these indices that you're seeing. Yeah, your point is well taken. And you're also right that these stocks were the worst performers in the downturn. And also, this is what you would expect. I mean, if you look at historically, when we get market bottoms, a lot of the time you see these low quality companies being the first ones to go up. You saw it in 2009 as well. Um, so it's, it's not anything out of the ordinary. But what, uh, the reason I think it's important to consider it is, you know, not to say this is, these returns were like ill-gotten returns or something like that, but more to understand that, you know, this may be something that may shift going forward. So when you get to a point where the high quality companies are just as cheap as the low quality companies, which is sort of where we've gotten now, you know, it, it may be an indication that maybe investing in the high quality quality companies may be a better strategy, you know, in the next three to five years or something like that. I mean, I can't predict the future any more than anyone else can, but I think that's why it's important to look to the past just so you can say, you know, I understand what happened and I understand what that could mean going forward. Um, what was our podcast this week? So, yeah, so we talked about um, Warren Buffett's annual letter to shareholders, which was um, put out, I think, two weekends ago at this point now. And so we just kind of walked through um, the letter page by page. Um, people can watch the podcast, but I guess the highlights of that is, you know, we talked about um, Buffett's holdings, the four jewels of Berkshire Hathaway, um, the concept or his belief in never basically betting against America. There's obviously sprinkles of long-term discipline investing in there. We talked about um, some of the historical, I guess, stories that Buffett gave with companies that he's bought in, which that kind of plays into the never bet against America thing. Um, and there was just, you know, there's always a bunch of wisdom in these shareholder letters. And, uh, you know, we like to make sure that we're reading them and paying attention to them. I mean, Buffett, what he didn't do is give any indication of really what he's going to, um, if he's identified any acquisition targets, although he did point out that they bought like $25 billion worth of stock back, uh, Berkshire Hathaway stock. And then he kind of gave the example how Apple's also buying stock back. So there's this concept that because they own so much of Apple, there's like this, you know, enhanced or double dividend, uh, 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 I'm sorry, a double buyback, if you will. I don't mean dividend, a double buyback, if you will, um, happening. One of the interesting things just to, um, I don't know if you saw, I tweeted, I was doing a little bit of like historical research on Warren Buffett. There's a new book out and we're going to maybe get this guy on our podcast, but the book is all about Berkshire Hathaway and the history. And um, on the book's website, it had when Berkshire last paid a dividend. And in 1967, Berkshire paid a 10 cent dividend. So on Twitter, I just dropped that like fun fact. I was like, fun fact, you know, uh, Berkshire paid a 10 cent dividend in 1967, not thinking. And then um, someone wrote on there, you know, how can you tweet that without um, calculating what that dividend would be worth today if he wouldn't have, wouldn't have paid that dividend and basically basically retained that 10 cents in terms of the performance of Berkshire Hathaway. So I actually calculated it and other people calculated it too. So I don't know, it was, it was just kind of interesting that, and that's a very important thing to think about and it doesn't play into buybacks as much as it plays into dividends um, and how that if you do pay a dividend and then you get a great long-term return in the stock, that dividend that was paid, you know, basically um, goes to the investor and you don't really get that 
amount that's in the security that can compound for the investor over time. So anyways. It sort of it sort of reminds me of the guy that bought the pizza with Bitcoin or something like that. Remember that whole story? Oh, yeah, right. Um, that right. The, the pizza would be worth like whatever ten million dollars or something now. The amount of Bitcoin it took to buy the pizza. Um, yeah. But yeah, you know it, it's true. I mean, if you obviously given the returns Berkshire had, I don't know what you calculated that ten cents to be worth, but it obviously was probably a very large number. Um, I would imagine. Yeah, I got like two grand. Somebody because it, it being Berkshire Hathaway is since that since sixty seven. The firm was founded in nineteen sixty five, but I went back to sixty seven. It's basically a two hundred thousand percent annualized return. So or uh, total return. So um, that's kind of what the number is. I mean, so ten cents. You know, it would be worth two thousand dollars today if compact if I did my math right. And so, anyways, there was different numbers that were being kicked around, but um, but it's it was a fun exercise nonetheless. So in terms of uh, articles um, that caught your eye this week, what one sort of jumped out at you? Yeah, we did a summary on the, on the blog of a podcast with Rafael Resendez, um, which was on the Odd Lots podcast that I thought was a really interesting interview. Um, we're about to have him on our podcast as well, so hopefully we can, we can ask him about this. But it, it was talking about, you know, a lot of people have explained, you know, tried to find ways to explain the struggles of value investing in the past decade. And, you know, intangibles has been one of the common ways, which is, you know, obviously value firm, people aren't taking into account the value of intangibles. So the stocks that we think are values may not actually be values. But he also took a, a different take on it which I thought was good. Um, you know, he, he talked about the whole concept of economic profit. Um, and he talked about how, how they use that and how maybe these traditional value metrics are, are not really getting at that. And you know, what economic profit is, is it's just basically the return on capital of a business minus its weighted average cost of capital. And so if a business has a negative economic profit, you know, there, there really would be no reason to put capital into that business because you know, the, they're not generating a return that's greater than what it costs them to get capital. Um, so I thought that was an interesting way to sort of look at it. Um, and you know, we're, we're going to ask him about this when he, when he comes on the podcast, but I thought the whole interview was was really, really good. And, you know, I think for those of us that are value investors, it's really important that we take a step back and try to look at, you know, what happened in the past decade and what are some of the potential ex explanations and how those explanations might help us to enhance our value strategies going forward. So I thought there were some interesting ideas in there. Yeah, two, two of the models we run on Validia take return on capital into consideration. One is the Buffett strategy. The other is um, the model based on Joe Greenblatt. But interestingly enough, in the Buffett letter, you know, he talks about looking for companies that generate high returns on not a lot of, you know, a capital base, basically. So it's it's something that, you know, I think it'll be interesting to talk to him about and see if we can, you know, peel, peel back the onion a little bit on um, on this uh, on this concept and, you know, maybe a different way to define or find value stocks. Yeah, I thought it was interesting and just that he had a different take on, you know, there's been a lot of takes on why value investing is broken. And I thought he had a different take, which is, you know, you don't see, you've seen so many of the same takes. It was, it was refreshing to see sort of a different way of looking at it. Um, what's your article this week? So, yeah, the article that really jumped out at me was from Barron's and the title of it was A Remembrance of the Man Who Made the Charging Bull. And I never knew the history about this. So basically that, you know, that bull that you see in these images that's on, uh, you know, down near Wall Street in New York um, it was actually created by a sculptor named Arturo uh, de Modica. And um, he actually recently passed away, which I think is probably why this article was written. But one of the interesting things about it was, so he, it cost him $300,000 to make this bull. And he actually, after the 1987 stock market crash, he actually put it on the street at night. So no one knew that this was coming. Maybe some of his family members and stuff knew that this was coming. But he basically brought this bull, however he got it there, and put it on the street um, at night. And it was supposed to symbolize, you know, that as 
the stock market and New Yorkers, at, given what was going on at the time, that, you know, we have this like ability to kind of push through and, you know, basically what whatever the bull symbolizes, like strength and, um, you know, those those types of things. But and then the, the article was talking about how that one of his friends was sort of giving, you know, more of the history there behind his work and other things that this this guy was working on. So I, I never knew, you know, I never knew what the story of of that bull was i always thought maybe you know you would think like a company made it or like the wall street or the new york stock exchange had it you know contracted but it wasn't it was just some guy that after the 1987 stock market crash you know basically put in the work and put it there and um just in sort of closing his friend wrote um this and this was in the article or he said this and this is in the article it's like the heritage that Arturo left new york the people the market the positive power will live forever that's really the purpose of art so I don't know. It's just, it, to me, it was a cool story. It's, it's got some history in there. And obviously that bull symbolizes, you know, what the stock market and long-term investing is all about. Yeah, I didn't know that story at all. You always do a good job of finding these, these articles that I never would have found, you know, when you're curating content for the blog. So yeah, that was a really interesting one. Thank you very much. All right, guys. So uh, hopefully you found this conversation uh, interesting and we'll see you next time. Thank you. If you'd like to keep up on the research, writing, and curation we're doing at Validia, please go to blog.validia.com to learn more and stay updated. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. Thanks so much. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital.